have somebody who uh, I've known forever. Uh, we were uh, fellow deli managers back in the day. He ran the Springville Gandolfos. I ran the Spanish Fort Gandolfos. And look at us now. Uh, here we are. Uh, please welcome the one and only, the great Ryan Westwood. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Uh, let's start with, you spoke at Hall of Fame. And you gave this incredible keynote. We've never actually done a keynote at Hall of Fame. That was the first one we've ever done. Uh, maybe we start there, like the message you're trying to get out currently, um, why you did that, and kind of, because uh, I know you like, you've like left Simplus, yep. right? Yep. And you're probably going to start something else. I don't know if we can talk about that. Yeah. Uh, but tell us, tell us how you're feeling. Yeah, so this is actually kind of interesting. I, uh, I asked my brother what his 10 favorite uh, movies were, and uh, he, I, I watched the movies, and it was unbelievable what I learned about him. And so then I thought, wait a second, what are my top 10 movies? And so I started looking at my top 10 movies, and there's this theme of love and inclusion. And it's just been, it, I realized, I'm like, this is so much uh, who I am. It's something I really care about. And I thought, well, why is that the case? And I started realizing it all started with this moment in the first grade where I was in Philadelphia, and I had this teacher who would now be in her 90s, who was, it was her last year before retirement. She would have been fired in an instant now as a teacher. Uh, but she told uh, she told a group of us uh, that we needed to stay in the back. She threw glue sticks on the table. She knew that I'd come from Utah. And so she felt like, okay, I already know who this guy is. I know what his faith is, and I don't like him. And then she told, the, she told a couple other kids uh, that she wasn't going to teach us. And she said, just do stuff. We're not going to come to this table. There's paper, there's scissors, and there's glue sticks. Just have a great school year. And if we rose our hand, she just pretended we were dead. She ignored us. And what happened is we just bonded. And so Bernard and Danny Chung and all my friends, we bonded and became great friends. But I felt like what it felt like to be excluded, to not have the upper hand, to be left out. And that was when I was six, and my teacher actually went so far as to try to convince my parents that I had a hearing issue. So I spent, like, I was spending all this time in this testing booth, and they kept putting me in there telling me, this guy can't hear. And it was because my teacher was just gaslighting me. And so that kept happening. And so I ended up, like, with this strong opinion that everybody needs to be involved, everyone should be included. And it's been a theme in my life. And so the keynote I gave was about love and inclusion and the place for love and inclusion in, at work. And I think sometimes it's taboo, but the reality is, is I think it's the secret sauce. I think building great companies happens where everybody feels like they're involved, everything's clicking, everybody feels like they matter at work, independent of sexual orientation, race, religion, whatever it is, you matter and you're important at work and everybody gets like that feeling. When you've ever been somewhere where you feel excluded and you don't feel like you're a part 
of something, how do you perform? How do you fill? I mean, I don't know how an employer could guess you would do anything different. And so I think if you, if you are part of a culture where you're, the person you are from 5 to 10.30 is okay at, from 8 to 5.30 at work, and it's the same and you can be the same, you're going to be your best performer. And so that was what my keynote was about is how do you create cultures or environments where everybody matters and everybody's involved? And I think that's what we did at Simplest, and that was our secret sauce. Yeah, go ahead. Um, you have an interesting background in our community in that you built companies a different way than most in kind of how you built them, how you financed them, how you grew them. You've done a lot of M&A, probably more M&A than you know, most people in the community. As you look back on your career so far, not that it's over, and as you look at like building Simplest and selling it and all that type of stuff, what advice would you have for everyone here about what it takes to do that, how you did it, particularly around the financing side? Because you know, venture capital doesn't play a huge role in your story until way later, right? So I, I think that would be really interesting for these folks to hear. Yeah, so I think like if you're a bootstrap entrepreneur, let me just give you some uh, context. There's so much uh, cachet put around raising venture capital. And so many people, those that don't raise venture capital, you feel like you're almost on the outside looking in. And I want to give you a counterpoint right now of probably what it's like for most of the entrepreneurs that raised a lot of venture capital. There's a lot of entrepreneurs that raise venture capital at valuations way higher than what the market is giving now. So I'll give you an example. If you look at the market cap for companies like Salesforce.com, Salesforce is getting maybe a five or five and a half times their revenue in the market right now. If you were an entrepreneur during the frenzy who raised at 50, how do you use the capital you had to grow into the valuation you had without major down rounds or if you were to go public at a fraction of what you were being valued and disappoint your investors? So there's a lot of entrepreneurs that raise venture capital that I think are in worse shape than those that bootstrapped. So you just, when you get under the hood and you realize how that works, it's not always the best way to scale a business or grow a business. And I think that for the entrepreneurs I know, love, and respect, most of them have bootstrapped once, and they get a certain discipline and rigor about finances and running your business that is not typical. And I see sometimes when you have too much venture capital, I've watched so many companies run so hard in the wrong direction carelessly because the capital comes too fast and too soon. So I developed a bit of rigor and discipline with my teams because, I mean, our first PCS, our first was 100% bootstrap. And we were looking at QuickBooks daily and we were trying to figure out what we were going to do to stay alive every day to build that business. And that develops a different type of entrepreneur. And I think it's super healthy. And so I've tried to merge both that mentality of being frugal and efficient with capital, with debt and venture capital, knowing when to deploy it, when not to deploy it, and what's appropriate. And I, I would say with entrepreneurs, be very curious when it comes to funding and how you structure that and what you do. Let me say this too, not all venture capital is the same. You, you need to understand the type, the stage. You need to understand their LPs, how they're made up, when they need returns. There's so much to understand. People will just say, 
just blanket adventure capital. Mm -hmm. And you can be in two different entire worlds based on who the venture capitalist is that backs your business. Mm -hmm. So I have venture capitalists that I know and trust, that I've spent time with, that I appreciate working with, and, and I kind of have a merge of all those worlds is now how I build a company. Do you think that that's like, particularly like your wave, as I think of like Ryan Smith or Aaron Sconard or like that, that kind of wave, even Josh with Omniture, like I don't think Ryan Smith raised money for 11 years. Yeah. I don't think Sconard did for 10. 10. Yeah. I don't think Omniture did for at least six or set, five, was it five? Yeah. 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 And like that seems to be like where our success stories came from now. There are exceptions to that, like Blake Murray, did Divi, raised money, exited in like five years for like two and a half billion dollars. That's crazy. That's actually never happened in our state. So there are exceptions to it, but do you think that's how we build companies here in the state? So this is an interesting question, and I know there's a lot of venture capitalists in the room, one just saying hi right now. So let, let me just say... Uh, oh, I didn't even realize that. Sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> so let me, let me say how I, how I see this. So I, I think that there's a lot of entrepreneurs who don't understand how to structure, and, and this is what I call being strategic about your cap table. So what I suggest, and this is a big plug for Scaler, but I hire Scaler and I say, okay, if the valuation were this and we were to raise this much and we were to look at every round all the way from here to IPO, what would we own, what would it look like, and who would own what? And what I see most entrepreneurs do is they're just excited. And just because you, gr you grind and it's tough and then a venture capitalist shows up and they want to give you money and they don't really understand what that means. And then they end up a lot of times losing control of the business or the opportunity and, because they're not thoughtful about that approach. And so what I would say to entrepreneurs that are early on, understand the tax implications, understand the, how the, the, the venture capital is structured, the type of venture capital fund, and then take a more thoughtful approach. I took a year or two, Clint, mm -hmm. of just interviewing entrepreneurs in a non, or venture capitalists in a non-threatening environment where we were just friends okay. through UVEF. Yeah, you tell people about that. Okay. Uh, tell people about the UVEF, sir, because I was there for that. That was actually yeah. really cool. Yeah, you were by my side to do that. So uh, there's, a, there's an organization called Utah Venture Entrepreneur Forum. And our board was all the venture capitalists or most of the venture capitalists in the early stages of venture in Utah. We had about 12 venture capital firms on the board. And I just spent a few years asking them all questions and watching how they behaved. And I was watching them like a hawk in this kind of environment where we were, we were serving the community and a nonprofit. And I was unpacking how they work and how they think. So then when I actually raised the money, I was very deliberate about who I took checks from and who I didn't and how we did it. Yeah, you gotta see up close, because this was basically every fund in the state yeah. was part of Utah Venture Entrepreneur Forum, and then me and you. Yeah, that was it. Yeah. <laughs> that, was like the, that was the organization. And what do we meet, like once a quarter? Yeah, once a quarter. And you got a front row seat at how all of these funds operate, how they interact with each other, which was fascinating. And then once you raised, I think we just folded it up into here, didn't it? Like that thing yeah. doesn't even yeah. exist. Anymore. So UVF is a part of Silicon yeah. So just start an organization, get all the VCs on your board, and raise money. That's how you do it. That's, that's Ryan's hack. It's pretty cool. It worked out. I've been thinking, yeah, yeah, it worked out really well. 
Uh, I've been thinking a lot about like the business of life, and, and as I talk to a lot of people over the past couple of years within our community, kind of mental health is a big thing. Physical health is a big thing. We've seen you and I having kind of had the front row seat that we've had to, to some of this growth in the state. Kind of how you go too hard in this, and you, de- you you go all in on this. It kind of affects your personal life, and it really it's kind of impossible for it not to. And so we know a lot of people whose personal lives are kind of blown up. Uh, despite being seen as like the the greatest successes ever, what do you? How do you handle that? Because you seem to be perfect, Clint. <laughs> Bless you for that. Uh, okay, so let me let me. Uh, thanks for bringing that up. I think there's a retribution for everything we do, and if we think we're you know there isn't, there is, and we have to be careful and deliberate about our approach and how we do it. And so I've thought a lot about this, and I want to actually tell a story because you made that comment about perfect. I'm going to tell a story about how unperfect I am, and I'm going to tell a very embarrassing story that I've told about three people. Eric, you're one of them. And I'm now going to just tell the story publicly because this was a moment, and I because I want people to know what's behind the scenes and what it's really like and, and what it really takes. You know, when... People talk about, whether it's Forbes or Entrepreneur or whatever it is, we're always talking about what it takes to build a business. But what does it take to build the person or people around the table, your leadership, your co-founders, that can be the people that build a business like that? And I think there's way too few studies and articles and thoughts on how we help people get to the next level and how people can be the ones that build businesses. There's a reason that majority of founders are replaced. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I, the statistics are alarming. I mean, I think in venture capital, it's like eight out of 10 oh, sure. at some point that are, that, are, uh, that are replaced. So I went through some really painful personal progression to be the kind of person that my, my executive team, my leadership team, my employees wanted to follow. And that meant mind, body, and soul, everything. It pushed me to the brink. And I think um, one thing people don't realize about building a company is it takes incredible emotional resilience and mental resilience that sometimes can break people and is probably not right for some people to be operators and entrepreneurs. I I would say that you should really think about that. But I had this moment where we were building Simplus and we were four years in and we were starting to catch momentum like we were probably 25 30 million in revenue and it was the first time i had broke through into double digits revenue and i was starting to like be like yeah we got this this is going to be so exciting this is going to be a lot of fun and i went to this jw marriott in las vegas and i'm at the marriott and my wife conjures up this great idea of doing acro yoga She's like, Ryan, we're going to try acro yoga. And I'm like, okay, honey, what so, is, wait I gotta, a second. I gotta what is acro up. yoga? So you like do yoga with your like partner and you lift each other and do all this. What stuff, are you right? talking? You did that? Yeah. So it gets way worse, Clint. So, <laughs> so my wife is a little lady and she's probably, you know, 110 pounds. So this is going to make the story even more embarrassing. So her and I are on the lawn. We're doing acro yoga and all the, and, and basically all I'm doing is I'm lifting her feet with my feet and my le- arms with her arms, and I'm lifting her up. It's like the simplest one you can do. And 
I, was, I had been working out for like one month. So I'm like, man, I got this. And I was feeling myself because I'd been working out for a yeah. month. Super bad idea. So I'm lifting my wife up and I feel this like horrific pain. I'm like, I am in so much pain. I'm dying. And I, I slipped a couple discs in my back. And I was screaming out and my wife's like, hey, let's get you to the Instacare. Let's go. And so I'm like leaning on her. She's dragging me to the car and off the strip in Las Vegas, it's not IHC. Let me just say that. You, you get in there, the seats were like tore up. Everyone was on drugs, Clint. And I was not a priority at all because I wasn't on you know, cocaine or something. And so I'm in the, the clinic and I couldn't convince them to even have me come back. And I finally said to the lady, I'm like, I'm gonna cry, I'm in so much pain. I'm, I'm, I'm like right there about to cry. I can't believe I'm telling this story. So I went, to the, I went to the back at the clinic. They let me in and I tell the doctor, I'm like, I'm in a lot of pain, can you do something? He's like, I'm gonna give you a shot. So he pulls my pants down to give me a shot and I passed out with my pants on my ankles. In Vegas. In Vegas. Four nurses wake me up, pulling my pants back up, give me a shot. My wife's like, vacation's over. I get in the back of the, shoot, we rented like a Suburban. We get in the back and we drive back up to Salt Lake City. And I get to the doctor and my doctor, amazing guy, he looks at me and he's like, Ryan, he's like, you know why all this happened? I'm like, no, what, what happened? He's like, your core is weak. And that's all he said. And when he looked at me and said, your core is weak, I was like, yeah, he's right, my core is weak, and that month of working out didn't do me any good, and I need to reinvent myself. And I heard not just your core is weak, but your core is weak. Yeah. Like, you can do more than this, you've gotta be better. And that was in 2018, I lost 20 pounds. The doctor told me that I was going to have to get uh, surgery, and now he's a teacher and he uses my x-rays as evidence that you don't need the surgery and with discipline, you can reverse the injury. Wow. So, so, yeah, so it started a bunch of new habits and a new health journey for me. So since that day, I haven't missed three workouts for my core. And then I started eating entirely different and I have a whole thing around that. And I went on this journey to become better and stronger. And, and luckily I was able to be the CEO to lead the business that you know, from zero to where we are, 650 million in revenue. But I had to reinvent myself and it was extremely painful. It was not just the physical, Clint, but it was also the emotional. When you're leading a team at that level, the team I have, they're all capable. They could all be CEOs in their own right. And so I usually am listening and talking at the very end of meetings where I used to talk the whole meeting. I mean, I had to reinvent myself front to back to be the leader to lead the business. Yeah, I was at a, an event once with, where Netflix CEO Reed Hastings, you may have been there as well, um, and he said something that's profound that I actually think about like once a week. He said, if you can't lead yourself, you're not going to be able to lead others. And I think that was, that was like pretty profound. It's, yeah. So how do you lead yourself? It might even be interesting to kind of explain like once you had that realization, once you had that moment, what you did, how you changed your habits. So... Uh, I have a friend that lives in Las Vegas, and last week on the airplane, he texted me and he said, 
what would you tell yourself 10 years ago at 30? What would you tell yourself? Share it with me. So I started scribbling on this notepad while I was on the airplane. And I went through mind, body, and soul and all the various things that I've done to kind of reinvent myself and to get better and stronger and healthier. So I have a couple highlights yeah, I could share. All right, I've got all kinds of habits. Now, uh, I highly recommend the book Atomic Habits. It was one of the most life-changing books for me. Uh, and the concepts in that book about discipline and habits and how habits ultimately make us who we are. We can think really big, but if we don't have the right discipline and habits around those things, it's hard to accomplish any of the things that we're dreaming or envisioning in our lives. I always felt like I had Willy Wonka type of like energy and like, like thinking big and dreaming big, but then I had to get the discipline behind it to be the person to actually execute on those big dreams. And I think a lot of times we're trying to figure out Hey, I think big. I'm, I'm thinking positive. Why isn't it happening? And it's a lot of times because we have to have greater discipline to back up those dreams. So I have all kinds of things that I do. So uh, there's a place that delivers juice to my house every Monday. Um, and it's juice for the whole week. And I knew that I was never going to eat four pounds of vegetables in a day. And I wasn't ever going to eat right like I was supposed to. And so I just started, they deliver them. It's no excuses. I don't have to make it, whatever else. And I, for two years, I just, I drink a ton. I'm drinking eight pounds of vegetables today uh, because of just that, yeah. that kind of discipline. So I think that everything we put in our body, everything we hear, everything we're around, it impacts our mind, body, and soul. And if we want to be at our best, we have to be deliberate about everything going on in our life and, and how it impacts us. So there's that. Um, I'm a cold shower guy. So I go hot, then cold. Yeah. I feel like it just wakes me up and it energizes me. It almost gives me a little dopamine. Yeah that gets me going every day. I know some people are like, that's crazy, I'll never do that. That's great, thanks for sharing. But that's something I do. Uh, I do those workouts that I was talking about. I also got really deliberate about my sleep. I used the Oro and, and tried to track my sleep and oh, yeah. the, the statistics the on thing? the ring, yeah. And what I found is um, when I sleep a little too much, it, uh, it pulls me down when I sleep a little too little. So for me, about seven hours is just right. I think it's important that you figure out what is the right balance of sleep for you and, and so that you can perform at your very, very best. Yeah. I think a lot of us just don't get that right and studying your sleep so that you can be your absolute best the next day. All this is about just nourishing yourself so that you yeah. can nourish your team. I, I kind of feel like it's that stage of my life, Clint, where it's not about Ryan Westwood. It's about how can I make everybody around me better, stronger, healthier, not just financially better, yeah. but healthier mentally, physically, emotionally. How can we lift each other? Yeah. This is a different, different <laughs> mentality. Yes. Thank you, CJ. Okay. So um, I also started a, so I'm a, a hyperactive kid. Uh, m m like my, my parents would say two Westwoods is like having eight kids. And my dad's favorite thing to say was, I'm just trying to keep you alive. And so we just had a, an enormous amount of energy. So my friends from high school or people that would have known me would have said, this guy's never going to be like this being still meditator. Yeah. And I, it, I have to say it took me three years to get to the point where it's become my favorite half hour of every day. Um, and so meditation I do every day, 
And it gives me a chance to detach from my emotions and from my day and from the rigor and from the stress and kind of see myself as a third party and rethink or not think about what I need to do to be better yeah. and to get better. So I came, like for me, the best way, I read a book called Being Still. And the book Being Still talks about just being able to get a few moments of quiet and not be connected to our devices or to life. And I highly recommend being still. Actually, Aaron Sconard gave it to me. Mm -hmm. And so what I would do is I'd just sit down in my room and try to just be still. And then I would find myself going to get my phone. Like within like four or five minutes, I was trying to get my phone. So then I left my phone outside of the room. I would just lay there. And then in the book, it recommends just getting a notebook. So I got a notebook. And every time I would get ideas or things would go through my head, instead of grabbing my phone, I'd write it in the notebook. And then eventually, I didn't need the notebook. And eventually, I just sat there still. And then I figured out a breathing technique going in and out of my nose. And you kind of take that air into your brain. And I'd do it about 20 times. And I found that like, everybody's different, different types of, I tried like 20 different meditation yeah. tactics. But that one worked for me. And I would feel so rested and so refreshed that it got to the point where two things happened. I would get in an executive meeting and I would make comments and some of our executives would be like, Ryan, you meditated on that. They would know that I spent that much time thinking about it or I would get in a place in the day where my wife would be like, Ryan, go meditate. So <laughs> I would get to a point where she would literally send me to go meditate because she knew that I would give her three hours after that that would be amazing. So, cause it would just calm me down and settle me. So those are like some of the little things that I started to do that have changed my life and my health. All this because I was embarrassed with my pants down in Las Vegas. Okay, so um, other things, Clint. Um, one of the other things that I would say is, I find that this is really, really important. If you want a mentor, just say, you're my mentor. I need your help. Way too many people have so much ego that you you have a hard time saying to this person that's maybe 10 20 years ahead of you especially entrepreneurs we're headstrong we want to figure things out we want to go in the dark forest and know how it all is and and go through the hard stuff to figure it out the reality is is we need mentors mm -hmm. and we need to look at them and say hey man I, hey man or lady i need you i need your mentorship and i see you as my mentor because this is why that's different. Because to the mentor, if you don't say, Bubba, I need you as a mentor, then people, th then Bubba will just move on to someone who will. Because mm -hmm. you don't always have the time to mentor that many people. Mm -hmm. And if they're not gonna be deliberate and ask for your help, then you're like, you know what? I'm, I, there's other people that really wanna listen, mm -hmm. that want this. So that's the other thing I've learned is find those mentors and then ask them to be your mentor and be explicit that you need their help. And then you'll get it, you'll, you'll, the probability goes way up than if you try to act coy and act like you're on the same level and it's the same thing and the reality is, is you're not, yeah. right? So I've got two or three people that, that are like that where I would call them in a crunch and they would get my back or help me and that helped a lot. The other thing is, is you have to, our, our uh, energy is sacred and the type of energy that you have and the people you surround yourself with can really, really impact who you are and how you feel every day. And so I have, I call it Willy Wonka energy. I have some friends who have Willy Wonka energy. They will dream up chocolate factors with me. 
and we will detach from the matrix and we will just talk about everything that can be accomplished in life. Like I love to talk to Brandon Fugel yeah. because Brandon Fugel, he'll just, he'll be like, Hey, I'm going to buy a mountain and put a castle on it, you know? And, <laughs> and, and it's fun to talk to him about it. So you have to have people find friends that make you feel like you can just dream and you won't be judged for it. There's so many people that are, that are just there to dash your dreams and your hopes and tell you you can't do things. Most people, when you look at the people that are doing that, they're usually the people that couldn't do it or didn't do it. And so they're telling you you can't do it. So you got to find some people that have Willy Wonka energy, get them around you, and they lift how you feel every day. And you have to be careful because you can get mired down with the wrong people that aren't giving you that energy. So I have a group of friends that I know that I can just say crazy dreams and they will actually be like, well, think bigger. You know, I had a conversation with Todd Peterson. I was talking about $2 billion and I was saying, you know, I'd like to get to that 2 billion market cap. And he was like, he was like, what are you talking about? You need to think a minimum of 10. And it was like, I was like, I need to hang around you more. <laughs> it's, it's like, because usually what people are telling you when you're talking like that is they're, they, like, they're, they don't say it, but they're looking at you like, he's a little crazy. Yeah. And I actually have had two or three people physically come up to me and say, I remember Lance in the early Stillbrook days, people come up to me and say, hey, when I talk to you guys or listen to you, we thought you were a little crazy, and then you did everything you said you were going to do. They actually admitted it. I feel like running a marathon now or something. Wasn't that like... Didn't that give you all like so much energy? Maybe more like walking a marathon. I, I bet I could walk it. I'll walk it with you. Uh, you guys have this incredible resource up here. Let, let's just open up to questions now. There are uh, mics, I believe. Hang on one sec. She's going to bring a mic. Let's start right here. This is the first one I saw, and then we'll just move around here. Thank you. Bernardo Spina, um, Romerica Corporation from Sandy, Utah. We're in the semiconductor industry. Um, going back to the beginning of the conversation about bootstrap versus um, raising capital, how about the opposite? What would you say to the company that has been bootstrapped forever, 20 plus years and still bootstrapped, and happy to be that way, but growing at a very slow pace? When is enough? How uh, advantages and disadvantages of it? What's your business model? We do sell business to business and um, large corporations, Intel, Samsung, those kind of companies. And what do you sell? Software. Okay. So you sell software. What are your, what's your competition like? Humongous companies that sell software plus hardware. We do the software only, so we're the little guys amongst them. Are you in a niche, or what's your market size? We are in a huge niche of all semiconductor manufacturer front-end fabs making microchips. However, we started just a couple of years ago into robotics, and that's a new niche that has transformed the company, our marketing, our sales, and everything into something new, but we still attach to the original model, and it's, it's two different animals. So this is the time I believe it will make sense to get rid of the bootstrap model and go into raising capital what's your profit margins uh, pre percentage is um over 50 it's pretty good 15 percent we have 20 okay. people 
making a lot of money, so it's good. But. So if you invested that 15, say you invested 20% and you're a negative five margin, how much faster do you think you would grow than you're currently growing? And what's your current growth percentage? Our growth percentage is very small. So we have capped at double digit, and that seems to have people upstairs happy. So I believe we If you're could... bootstrapping, you are the people, you're, you're, you're both the people upstairs and downstairs. <laughs> I report directly to CDO, but uh, got but, it. Yeah, but I, I have no say on the uh, on the um, other model that I would love to have, and is looking at probably bringing in investment and and growing at a way faster rate. Yeah. So if you have a strong conviction that there's a lot of market ahead of you, and that you have a product that is at the edge and that it's needed, and that if you were to trade that margin for growth that it would create exponentially more growth. So say you invested that 20% or that 15% and you could grow at 100%, that's a venture capital type business. If you're gonna grow at 20, you should probably keep bootstrapping. Thank you. What I would do is just say you're AI enabled. <laughs> then you'll raise all the money you want. Hi, my name is Jaime Gonzalez. I'm a project manager at Family Search in Salt Lake City. Um, so, Ryan, you had mentioned you've mentioned in the past that you found a particular niche in uh, cash to quote or quote to cash in, in with Simplus. How did you know at the beginning of the business that that specific niche was lucrative? And if you didn't know, uh, what was your approach? I had no idea. So it, uh, I'll tell you how it. This is how this is the best analogy I can give for this. When you're an entrepreneur, you just have to do it. You have to just start. You're not going to have the most brilliant ideas and the most brilliant website. The, the difference is just acting and having the faith to just do it. And then once you get there, you iterate, you grow. You, and if you, I had a couple college students at the U ask me, when do you know when to quit? And my answer was never. If this is your one thing and you're raising venture capital for it, you go till you deliver returns for everyone. And that's the mentality I had is I'm never going to quit until everybody gets paid and this is successful. And so when we started our team, we were, we were integrating Workfront, Domo, and Salesforce. We were doing a very different thing. But it's almost like a running back. And you're, you're, you're looking in the offensive line and you're looking for a hole. And when that hole hits, you strike and you're going for a touchdown. And that's what it was like with quote to cash is we saw that in the Salesforce ecosystem, there was a need for quote to cash. So this is the hard part. We had to quit doing everything else. And this is where most entrepreneurs make the colossal mistake. They want to be all things to all people. And when you, when you decide that there's an opportunity and you're convicted about it, you have to quit doing everything else because you have limited resources, limited capital. You have to differentiate, dig your heels in, become the best in the world at it, and then you beat the big guys and you build a big company. But you have to have the discipline to say no when you find that one thing that's great. Don't keep trying to do three or four things. You don't have enough resources or enough capital. If you had $100 million in the top executives in the world and your name was Elon, maybe, but it's not. Got it, thank you. I am Heather Namelka. I need you to be my mentor. <laughs> Touche. Um, so, Ryan, you may not remember this, but in 2017, I'm going to get emotional about this. Um, I wrote an article for Silicon Slopes magazine 
about culture. And you were one of the founders that were, was willing to talk to me. And I was curious where you have seen culture change with your experience with Simplest, because that was five years ago almost. How have you seen that change um, over the course of your company? And as you're starting a new company, because I'm, I'm working on a startup myself, how do you see that um, change? Good question. So here's one thing that I see founders do is they're disingenuous about company values or the culture they want, and it doesn't match who they are. First thing you have to ask yourself is, who am I? And who are my co-founders? If you have co-founders that contradict the company cultures you intend to create, you're gonna struggle. Like the reason I partner with Amy Cook or Lance Evanson or Isaac Westwood or Joe Carr, these people, they personify our company culture just like as if I was in the room. I feel 100% confidence that they are just like my counterparts, that we are equal and that we will, the culture will permeate throughout the organization, everywhere they go. So that's the first thing is just make sure that it's core to who you are, the culture, and isn't counter. If you're talking about caring and you're usually really cynical and angry person and your company culture is caring, probably not gonna come off real genuine and build a great company culture. The other thing that I've thought a lot about is your company goes through a lot, when you grow a really big business, the culture that you need in a public business, the culture you need in the late stage, the culture you need in the early stage, how do you keep that continuity? It never should change, but the incentives may change for people and how you align their motives. But company culture, once it's established by the founders and by the early employees, it should never change through the, through the growth of the business. So you should be really thoughtful about what are the values, what, how do we behave, what do we believe in what do you truly in your heart believe in as a founder? And then from there, you'll find a company culture that works. And then you have to have someone like I have, a Joe Carr who came in from England, who makes sure he's the gatekeeper that makes sure nobody gets in our company that isn't a caring person. Because that's who our company's, that's what we are. Hi, my name is Hunter Simmons. Um, I, so I have a question, Ryan. Um, we are, I feel like I'm struggling right now with culture. Um, we grow, our, we grow our team really fast um, and in piecemeal style because we were dealing with immediate problems and they were kind of stop gaps to solve a lot of the problems that we were facing at the time. And we're now in a point where I think a lot of the corners that we cut, not necessarily are catching up with us, but we did cut a lot of corners to get to where we are um, and not in a bad way. Obviously, you talk about limited resources and we feel like time is one that's super limited for us. Um, how do you course correct, maybe is, is the wrong word, because I don't feel like we built a, a team on bad cultural principles. It's just when we were hiring, we were hiring to solve immediate problems and not thinking like, oh, wow, you know, we're going to build this, this great company with great cultures. It's like we just need somebody that can, you know, deploy our infra or they can write Go code well, right? Like that's all we're scanning for and we don't really have the time yeah. to or the luxury to go and think oh well yeah this person's great but they're not the you know it's like i don't know yeah. so how do you course correct okay great question so if you can just take one day you can you can start the process to course correct this is what we did we broke our team when we were like 35 people into four groups and in those four groups we had them pretend that they were going to go on larry king live on CNN and they were going to talk about what Simplest became five years from now 
and we broke up into groups and they went and they each prepared a little video presentation and then we took that as a leadership team is this is who we are and we picked three core values and we picked one audacious crazy vision or goal that we all wanted to march towards that next five years by the way we went through three of those we just kept chewing them up it was so exciting but we had that vision early on and all we had to do is capture from the people there what they cared about and what made them tick and so we we boiled it down to three core values and this is the other huge mistake companies make if you go into a lot of companies you'll see up on the wall and I've actually done this intentionally you'll see on the wall like a mission statement with like 20 things that they are and I always ask the employees every time I see it hey can you name one of those and I've never had one name one of them and the, the colossal mistake is they try to be too many things if you're building a company culture keep it very simple don't do more than three core values it should be literally three things because who wakes up every morning and remembers 18 things that they are yeah. you know what i mean it's just a joke it's marketing and so we were we were all about caring and stewardship and we we had underdog spirit we just had core values that were simple and easy and just a couple of them and then we actually woke up and we meant what we meant and then when we had tough situations come up our values were actually the filter we made all our decisions by so during the pandemic we had a situation where we lost a big piece of our clients we were gonna have to do a layoff and so I announced hey we can do a layoff or we can do it this way and I said we have a caring culture and we don't want anyone to lose and we don't want to lose any of our teammates so what can we do and everybody said what if we took a 10% pay cut for a quarter and then no one got let go and everyone agreed that that was the way we would do it we did it and no one got let go and we rode through it and then they hit bonuses at the end of the year and everyone's pay flipped back and there was no layoff and that was because of company culture so yeah so that that's what when you lay the framework five years before the panic comes and there's a pandemic then things happen and your employees they made the decision for me Clint I didn't yeah. they made it a lot easier than having to lose some of our our family hey Ryan so I remember this day but 1096 days ago February 11 2020 a three years ago literally TechCrunch runs this headline Infosys is acquiring simplest for $250 million to grow its Salesforce consulting arm. Everything you've talked about today is pretty amazing. You haven't talked about Simplis and Infosys at all. What did you learn in that journey? And it's probably a whole nother conversations, but maybe a minute or two, I think that'd be great. So here's the backstory. We pushed that acquisition out three weeks because myself and Isaac uh, tried to get them to pull that number out of the press release we got them to successfully pull the number out and then we found out that Infosys is also public in India and the India Times four months four minutes after the original press release that didn't have the dollar amount in it went India Times ran a press release with 250 million dollars and my three weeks was for nothing and then TechCrunch grabbed it about 15 minutes later so that headline uh, we tried to avoid because I just felt like it would be better off that that was confidential. But now that it's very, very public 
and uh, it's a part of our story, and I feel grateful to be a part of it. When I look back, this is honestly what I think about. I think about the people I did it with. I mean, the relationships, the, the money, there's only so many socks you can buy on Amazon. There is a diminishing return on wealth. There's only so much that matters after you pay off your home and you have a stable life. There's the rest of it. I mean, maybe you want to fly business class. That's, that's kind of, you know, you're good, right? You're taken care of. And so I think what I look back on with the fondest of memories and what I miss now, six months of being out of it, is just really good people working really hard. There's something magical in life about having a definitive plan and a definitive purpose. When everybody has a purpose and they know the purpose and they know the plan and they're all working together on it, it's like ecstasy. It's a part of entrepreneurship that's like taking drugs because you get to create something from nothing and you get to have an idea in the shower and have 2,000 people help you with that idea. That's magic. I want to, uh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, I, I keep interrupting applause lines. Go ahead, give them a round of applause. Um, real quick, I want to touch on this. We were at a jazz game. Do you remember this? Uh, I think Rudy had COVID. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the microphone. And we were talking about the timing that you'd, you'd gotten this right before. Because it really did feel like, I want to say like it, a week later, the whole world shut down or something. It was like it was like really quick, and we felt that we knew it was like in a in a week the whole world's going to be different. Yeah. What do you, what do you think about your time, like the timing of that, and how did that happen? And isn't that crazy to think about? Because like, could you have done that a month later? No, no. So the day the president announced the national pandemic is when it funded in all of our accounts the acquisition. <laughs> So it was, it was euphoric and nerve-wracking every second. Because even when we got through the agreements and we were getting really close, I still was panicking every day on the inside. Because I was like, what if something happens because of the pandemic and the board rethinks it? Because I presented to 43 people at Infosys before our acquisition closed. And so they don't, the, a lot of the decisions they make as a business are collective. So I thought all it takes is for one or two of those people that I presented to, to switch. And so I was panicking literally every day till it hit the bank account. But I am so grateful. I think the timing was divine. Uh, all right, who else? Yeah, Boswell. Hey, Ryan, we've got a question on our uh, LinkedIn live stream from Nayara Suarez. Uh, she asks, early on, uh, what was the importance of networking for your business? And how did you go about meeting and connecting with the right people to enhance your business plan? Yeah, so we actually highlighted one of those things. I, I think that you get involved in the community and helping in, in some way, and you build relationships by doing that. I also think it makes sense for a lot of entrepreneurs to join a startup. And what you're really doing, you should always be thinking about who do I want to go to war with? Who are the people that I like to be around? I keep a list I have for 18 years of people I want to work with. So I, I mean, I could be a dodo and my waiter is fantastic and I'm like, okay, they're going in my spreadsheet. So you, you should, as an entrepreneur, you should always be looking for people you want to be around or work with. So I would just say in your everyday life, be thinking about 
those people because one of the great things about being an entrepreneur is you get to pick all the people you work with. So keep your eyes out for that. Your networking though does change with time because you have to stay focused on the business and you have to ask yourself this one question. Does this move the needle for my business or my ego? There was a time where we won best company to work for and they asked myself and my brother Isaac to do the cover of Utah Business Magazine. And I told them we didn't have time and I sent, um, I sent Alejandro and I sent Grant Acosta and a few other of my employees to go do the cover of the magazine because I asked myself that question. Is this for my ego or is this going to help? And I had an acquisition I wanted to get done that day. So I said no, focused on the acquisition. Sometimes you have to make hard decisions and say, should I go to this networking thing because of this ego or should I do this because it's really going to move the needle? If you ask yourself that question, you're a little more careful as in the beginning you need to network as much as you can. But when you start to build a business that's getting traction, you have to be very thoughtful about which events do I go to, which ones do I not go to, to build the business and make the sacrifices that are necessary. Uh, Ryan, was, was PC Carriage Support, was that your first business or did you have thing, something before? We that? had one right before it, yeah. So whatever your, well actually let's say before PC Care Support. What, you're an angel investor. Would you have inv invested in that Ryan Westwood that, at that time? Oh man, that's such a good question. I feel like what I had at that time, Trent, was just resilience, like from growing up on a farm and just like that part of my life of just toughness. So I would say yes, because we delivered them a return and we didn't quit. But um, boy, when I look back, I had that, that person had a lot to learn, a lot. But I would say yes, just because the criteria for me to invest is usually you're betting on a jockey. And is that the kind of person who, when you look them in the eyes, they're like, I'm not giving up till I get this done for you. I'll bet on that person all day. Please give it up for Thanks. Ryan Westwood.